Okay, Acts 20 today. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice at Your Word. Even as we sing Your Word, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we rejoice at hearing Your truth and taking it to heart. It is like finding great spoil. And, O Lord, we confess we are distracted by the duties, the difficulties, the toils, the delights and treasures and pleasures of this life, many of which are good and are from you. But on this day, you have asked us to lay those things aside and to be refreshed in their source. Your words, O Lord, are sweeter than honey on our lips. May we savor them. And likewise, be nourished and strengthened by them. On Christ's merits, we plead these rich blessings that are his alone. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Actually called a last minute audible, so I won't be preaching on uh, 13 through 16 anymore like I intended to. But we'll still read uh, 1 through 16. So. Uh, this is the word of the Lord from Acts 20, 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came from Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of uh, Pyrrhus, accompanied him and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, and we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered. A young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when we met, he met us at Asos, we came, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had to, decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Amen. Praise God for his word. (coughs) 
Jesus promised us two things in John 16. In this world you will have trouble and take heart. I have overcome the world. Uh, life is hard. The Christian life is hard. We're assailed by enemies, the, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we're also afflicted by the, the consequences of sin, uh, the curse of sin in disease and death and the thorns in the soil. So life is difficult. Sometimes I think I would wish that, that Jesus would just kind of come and make it all better. Or at least come and, and sit next to me and, and whisper encouragements into my ear. But Jesus, in his human nature at least, is up in heaven. And as far as we can tell, he doesn't make house calls. But remember what he said to his disciples. And initially it sounds strange what he said. He said in John fifteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit is called the helper or sometimes comforter. Uh, it's the same word. You, and it's used, this word is used throughout our text today as well. Uh, the word encouragement or encourager or comforter. It's the word parakletos. Here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the comforter described in John 16, beginning in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then jumping down to verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the encourager. And we encounter this word numerous times in this text of encouragement or comfort or parakletos. And indeed, what we have in this passage is, which is initially a strange passage and difficult to understand, why it's here, but it's really Paul executing the ministry of encouragement. He is doing the ministry of missionary pastor. He's caring for the saints for whom he's already uh, planted these churches in these various places. So if you are a battered, weary soul who wants encouragement from the Lord Jesus, like I do, or if you desire to encourage others, then join me in considering just how the Lord Jesus, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and the Apostles engage in this ministry of encouragement to the disciples of Christ. Um, so we see Paul engaging in the ministry of encouragement here initially among the Ephesians before he leaves. In verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. <clears throat> it's important to understand here, this is right after the uproar in the, the Ephesian uh, um, theater. And it's also important to understand that Paul is not pushed out here. He was already planning to take his journey to Macedonia. We saw in uh, 1921 that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to Jerusalem. Uh, and after I've been there, he says, 
I must also see Rome. So he already had this plan in place. He already sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him to Macedonia. He wasn't fleeing scared, although this may have been a confirmation for him. And it says that Paul encouraged the disciples here before he left. That's what he intended to do. He gathered to get them together to encourage them. As I mentioned, the word uh, for encouragement here is parakletos, or the verbal form parakaleo, which can be translated variously in the New Testament, uh, urge, exhort, call, uh, call alongside, and comfort and, and encourage. So there's multiple meanings depending on the context. And similarly, we use the word encourage uh, in different ways sometimes. For example, we can use the word encourage to exhort someone. I, I encourage you, Cohen and Zoe, to work hard on your schoolwork. That's an exhortation form of encouragement. Or comfort. We can use the word encouragement as comfort. I want to encourage you that though what you are doing is hard, you are doing a good job. So we can use the word encourage uh, to, to mean multiple things as well. And the word encourage itself literally is to, to supply or inject courage into somebody or to embolden them, uh, which in and of itself implies that the, the encouragee is facing something for which they need courage, something challenging, something fearful. Sometimes we use this word encourage to simply mean, uh, I want to tell you it's going to be okay. Which can be true. Um, that's emboldening sometimes to know that, that the sense of foreboding that we may feel about something is probably overblown in our minds and it's, it's going to be okay. Um, but, but what if we're diagnosed with this stage four aggressive, incurable cancer? Suddenly the words, it's going to be all right, seem a little trite. Maybe not as helpful or encouraging. And surely what we need in that moment is comfort. But realistic comfort and perhaps more than anything, we need strengthening. We need emboldening for the battle that faces us. In the New Testament, the ministry of parakaleo, of encouragement, encompasses all the senses of the word, depending on context, depending on the need of the moment. Does a person need comfort? Do they need exhortation? Do they need rallying? So what kind of encouragement does Paul offer here as he departs? Um, the, the context here is after the uproar ceased. So we already know off the bat this is the, that life as a Christian in Ephesus is not going to be a bed of roses. And what do they need? They need encouragement. They need exhortation. They need to place the coming suffering in its proper context. And they need to go into the future with their eyes wide open. And we get a sense of how Paul views the, the ministry of encouragement by reading his epistles. His epistles are a part of the ministry of encouragement. For example, Ephesians, to whom, where he is now, he, he had written to them that they need, they're going to face uh, enemies, spiritual enemies. And what does he tell them to do? Put on the full armor of God. That's encouragement. That's exhortation. He strengthens the hearts of believers through primarily through instruction, through training, through exhortation by the power of the spirit. And he does so out of a deep pastoral love and care 
for the flock of Christ. Uh, Paul here, he's not a, a kind of a cold general who, who barks orders to troops for whom he has no compassion or no affection, but actually with a love of, of a father and the tenderness of a mother, he even says, he seeks to encourage them and prepare them for the Christian life. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12, Paul reminds the Thessalonians, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because we had come, you had become very dear to us. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. Another example, we'll be looking in the next coming weeks at the, Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders. This is another great example of what it meant to be uh, to, to undertake the ministry of encouragement. Uh, a great example is that if you look down at verses 29 through 32, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, <coughs> I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's that's a hard one for me. I'm just not an affectionate or emotional person, but he, he admonished with tears. He says, now I commend you to God as the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. His labor of encouragement continues here in verse two, when he had gone through those regions that is Macedonia and Greece, he had given them much encouragement and he came to Greece. Excuse me. He, came, he went through Macedonia. He was on his way to Greece. And he had given them much encouragement. And there in Greece he spent three months. So I've done this before. But the, the body map. Okay, here's the Aegean Sea. Here's Turkey. Okay, here's Macedonia and Achaia. So he's here. He's going to get here. But he's going to go all the way here over to, to Greece. To, to Corinth. Right, and then he's gonna actually he was gonna sail back this way, but he ends up going all the way back near Ephesus. Okay, so this is what he's doing is he's working his way through these churches he's already been to to Philippi, to Thessalonica, and he's giving them a c- encouragement. And Greece here uh, is is synonymous essentially with uh, Achaia, or the southern region of of um, what we would call Greece today. And quite possibly he visited Corinth once again. And Paul had likely written the letter of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And he'd also sent, it seems, he sent Titus to Corinth at some point uh, while he was traveling or from Ephesus with what has been called the letter of tears, which we don't have anymore, but uh, a letter of admonishment to the church of Corinth. And then he likely wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia as he was traveling toward Greece, toward this this church. Throughout his travels, his activities are described in verse 2 as much encouragement. 
We get a further sense of how Paul was thinking during this time as he's, he's approaching this, this church in Corinth, this city of debauchery, this church that had had so many problems, and he, he, a church he had to rebuke sharply, and he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians that really demonstrates a great deal of affection, of care, of encouragement. Um, <clears throat> just one example, 2 Corinthians uh, 1.3. Paul says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comforts. And that comfort is that word parakletos, the same word as encouragement, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So you get a sense of, of his pastoral heart as he comes toward this church who he had had to severely admonish at least a couple of times. Uh, he spends three months in this region of Greece or Achaia, probably near Corinth, and his intention is to sail from there directly to Syria to get back to Jerusalem. Um, but here he it says he stayed for three months, so this is probably the winter months in which the Mediterranean Sea is rough and not really navigable, and so he's waiting for it to become navigable. Uh, probably Paul wrote uh, the epistle to the Romans during this time while he was in Greece, uh, again, instructing, encouraging a church that he never even met. If we consider Paul's example, uh, both as you seek to be an encouragement and as you seek to be encouraged, Paul's ministry of encouragement was not primarily that of, of attaboys, of great job. He did that sometimes. But it was primarily a theological ministry. Look at his epistles. They're primarily applying theology to, to practical life situations. This is how he encourages the saints. So we'll see in a moment. His visits were the same. Um, and, and this makes sense because the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, is to tell us about Jesus primarily. Paul stays there in Greece, uh, building up the body. And then it says, when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. Um, So uh, when you're flying, uh, say, to, to General Assembly, you go to Denver and you get on the plane, there's inevitably going to be people you know there, because we're all headed to the same place right and at this time of year we're about to get into the feast time of year uh, when they're about to go to jerusalem jews are about to go to jerusalem for passover and so very likely this this plot against paul one person said this would be an opportune time to throw paul overboard they're in tight quarters um, speculation we don't know for sure but paul decided to go back the way he came so instead of going to to jerusalem he goes back this way Now, he, Paul did not do uh, the work of the ministry 
alone. In verse 4, uh, we read of these men who are with him. Sopater the Berean, uh, Py- uh, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, and Tychicus of and uh, Trophimus. Um, so these men represent a wide swath of areas that Paul had visited. Uh, Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, Lystra, Ephesus. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, Craig Keener notes this, that just as prominent representatives from each Jewish communities uh, would bring the annual temple tax to Jerusalem, so Paul has traveling companions from different Christian communities serving the poor in Jerusalem. You remember part of the reason Paul wants to get back to Jerusalem is to deliver uh, the, the offering to those who are suffering in Jerusalem. But Paul, does, uh, Christ doesn't leave Paul without in, encouragement here as well. His companions are a great help and encouragement to him, even as they are being trained up in the ministry by him. Uh, we read in Colossians 4, Paul says about some of his companions, they have been a great comfort to me. So even Paul was a, a recipient of the ministry of encouragement. Just a few notes on some of these men. Uh, Sopater, we find him in Romans 16.21 uh, as uh, uh, he, he Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. He calls them his kinsmen. I don't know if that's literal or probably more figurative. Uh, Aristarchus. Aristarchus, along with Gaius of Derby, who's mentioned in this list where those two men were dragged into the, the theater in Ephesus in chapter 19. And according to uh, chapter 27, Aristarchus accompanies Paul on his trip to Rome. And in Colossians 4, we discover that he's even at this point when Paul writes Colossians from Rome, imprisoned with Paul in Rome. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. In Philemon, Paul calls him my fellow worker. Secundus, he and Aristarchus are both uh, from Thessalonica. And here we kind of see in their names, actually, some of the the different classes that these men may have come from. Aristarchus uh, may have some connection to aristocracy or higher class. And Secundus may have been the name of a uh, second-ranked slave. Um, That would be a common name for somebody like that, Secundus. Timothy, we're familiar with Timothy of Lystra, constant companion of Paul, pastor of Ephesus, recipient of two pastoral epistles. Uh, We could spend several sermon series on the ministry of of Timothy. The Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, Tychicus, the the beloved mailman. He delivered Paul's epistles for him. Uh, Colossians 4, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. We read about Trophimus in chapter 21, 29. Uh, he went with Paul all the way to Jerusalem and then on his way back again through back toward Rome. Uh, Paul actually leaves him on the island of Miletus. We read in 2 Timothy 4, 2 because he fell ill. So these men, these are... <laughs> Just not just weird names that we read, but they're real life men that played a, a role in the founding of the, the foundation of the church. They were, they were men who were Paul's fellow beloved workmen, men who trusted uh, or held the trustworthy word as taught and the faith once for all delivered. 
There, there were men who clearly he could trust to, to send ahead of him or to leave behind and to do the work of the ministry. I think this highlights the corporate nature of our faith. Uh, as a hive cannot be sustained by a single bee nor a bee without the hive. Uh, so the ministry of encouragement as governed by, by King Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit and executed by the church is, is a mutual, it's a corporate affair. As we read in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we hold fast the confession of our faith? By stirring one another up to love and good works, by by encouraging one another, by, by engaging in the ministry of parakletos. Now, one additional companion is here mentioned in verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi and after days of, the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Here again, the third person plural is back. We kind of lost track of Luke in Philippi on the second ministry journey, and now he's back again from in Philippi. So apparently he stayed in that, in that region. He remains with Paul at Philippi. The others go ahead, and we don't know why they waited, but we can speculate that they were doing the same ministry, the ministry of encouraging, of building up the saints in Philippi, and I believe that the Feast of Unleavened Bread here is primarily used as a, a time indicator um, for Paul. His great desire is to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, which is 50 days from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, so after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they set sail from Philippi to Troas. took five days to get there. And it was here in Troas where we have one of the, the strangest and most extraordinary miracles in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I'm considering doing that this afternoon. Thankfully, there's no windows in here. <laughs> but we noticed a couple of things initially about about their meeting. Is that first, it was on the first day of the week. Um, this is probably not happenstance. More likely they were gathered for corporate worship or what John calls in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord's Day. This change from Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday as the Christian Sabbath happened very early on in the apostolic church. And even we have a, a very early attestation to it in Justin Martyr, a clear explanation of why Christian worship happens on Sunday rather than Saturdays. He says, but Sunday is the day in which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So Christians began to worship on Sunday, so this is what they were doing here. And moreover, it says they were gathered for a specific purpose, that is, to break bread. To break bread, which could have been a meal. Certainly we gather to break bread together. 
But we notice in verse 11, they hadn't eaten bread yet, and it was past midnight. Um, and, and even after they returned from, from Tychicus's or Eutychus's fall, um, then they take, they, they participate in this breaking of bread. So it would just be an odd mealtime. It'd be an odd time for communion as well. But I think it makes the most sense that it's the Lord's Supper, that they gathered specifically for the stated purpose of enjoying the Lord's Supper together. Um, and that's, that's worthy of note that, uh, I don't know, in our histories, our personal histories, how often we've thought about, I come to church to break bread. That's the purpose behind me coming there. But it was in the very early church, that was a major emphasis of why we come together for church. And this is one of the many reasons why we have communion every week here. Uh, and the, because the supper, we believe, is a means of grace to us. It's a, it's truly a, a gift to us for the building up and nourishing of our faith. Luke goes on here and he adds a strange detail. At first I just thought, Luke always has a purpose, but I don't know what his purpose is in this sentence yet, when I initially read it. But verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And I think the purpose is primarily you have this room full of people, uh, lots of lamps, which are fire. So it's going to start heating up and it's oil lamps. So the air quality is going to be not very good. And all of this explains why Eutychus would want to sit in a window because it's going to be cooler. It's going to get fresh air. Um, and it also explains the environment explains why he would fall asleep beyond the fact that Paul was preaching uh, past midnight. In verse 9, a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and he was taken up dead. So this Greek word young man here probably means a a young man between the ages of 8 and 14. Um, And it's interesting, his name means uh, lucky one or fortunate one. Now, because Paul says in verse 10 that his life is in him, some people have speculated that he was never actually dead, but it says very clearly here, he was taken up dead. Some writers shame poor Eutychus, but it's understandable that he would fall asleep. The labor of listening is not easy. Paul himself was not known for his oratory skill. And we should not pretend that it's easier if that if we really love Jesus with all our hearts, our hearts would be all a flutter and our minds would be a light for every lengthy lecture about the Bible. That's just not the reality. It's hard work, but it's valuable work. Certainly we ourselves are often sleepy, sleepy when the, the word is being preached. And it, this gives us an opportunity to ask the question, why am I tired? Is it because I stayed up late watching movies and drinking alcohol and eating sugar last night? Is that why I'm tired? Or is it because I got up late and I'm just, I'm just wiping the goobies from my eye and I'm just here? Or because I've been working all morning and I'm not really here? Why am I sleepy? Leads us to, to the, the notion that the power of, of preparation, that if we really come to the word with expectation that the night before or even the morning of, we'll be preparing ourselves to receive the word of God. 
Calvin says here on this point, I see no cause why some interpreters should so so should so sore and sharply that's a tongue twister should so sore and sharply condemn the drowsiness of the young man that they should say he was punished for his sluggishness by death. For what marvel is it if seeing the night was so far spent, having striven so long with sleep, he yielded at length. And he says, those who being drowned in earthly cares come to the word loathsomely. Those who being full of meat and wine are thereby brought to sleep. Those who are vigilant enough in other matters, but hear the word as though they did not care for it, shall be justly condemned for their drowsiness. But Luke does in plain words acquit Eutychus when he says that he fell down being overcome with deep sleep after midnight. So he's saying... Eutychus is acquitted, but maybe not all of us are always acquitted in, for our drowsiness. Verse 10, he goes on, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. This image here brings to mind the prophet Elijah, and the strange story when he laid on the young man to bring him back to life. Um, it brings to mind also the ministries of, of Elijah and Elisha, of Peter with, with Dorcas, of Jesus and Lazarus, that these are rare periods in the church's history and redemptive history when God is powerfully working through men to the point that they're raising people from the dead. This is a bit of a unique miracle in the history of miracles because it's, it's not as public as other miracles. It's done among Christians in the middle of the night at a worship service. However, word would likely spread, but this is primarily a pastoral miracle, a miracle of encouragement. Verse 12, we we read, uh, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. It's, It's a miracle of encouragement. Paul's love and concern for the disciples at Troas is demonstrated in tender affection for them. He, he takes up the boy in his arms. He says, do not be alarmed. His life is in him. So this is a unique miracle because it is first and foremost a, minist- a miracle of encouragement to, to lift up God's people. We can imagine here what might have happened if Paul did not raise Eutychus from the dead. We were having a wonderful evening. Paul was teaching to us the word of God, uh, and he was about to leave, and it was it was going very well, and, and we were being built up and strengthened and, and being prepared to carry on without Paul after he left. And then Eutychus died, and he fell, and he broke his neck, and his mother couldn't be consoled, and, and we didn't know what to say. We can kind of imagine if that didn't, that didn't happen. But then on the converse... It's as though Christ, through this miracle, is, is adding fiber to the cement mix of the foundation of the church there in Troas. They all went away from that place profoundly encouraged, equipped to withstand the forces of evil, encouraged to stand firm against the waves of false doctrine, and strengthened by this extraordinary miracle, knowing that the word of the Lord is indeed the word of the Lord. I can imagine somebody later telling this story to someone else. Paul was kind of going on and on, and it was really good, but he was really going on and on. And 
And then Eutychus, this boy, fell asleep and fell from the window, and he died, and by God's grace, Paul raised him from the dead. And then get this, Paul just kept on trucking till daylight, like nothing happened. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten and conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. So they went ahead here, they enjoyed the supper together, and he he goes right on teaching and ministering and, and conversing with them right through until morning. And we see here the tremendous value placed on the ministry of the preaching and teaching of the Word of God as the ministry of encouragement. Because, after all, we might think that a resurrection miracle would be enough encouragement for one night. We should be reminded that this story is is an unusual circumstance in many respects, that it's not altogether normative for us, that it's prescriptive, descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. We probably don't need to have uh, all-night preaching services because Paul did that here. Uh, we should not obviously expect people to raise, be risen from the dead as a general principle. But consider some things that are common to our experience. We gather together on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. Our gatherings are centered around the means of grace, around the breaking of bread and the preaching of the Word of God. We come here with a sense of of urgency, of need, of expectation, because we are engaged in the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil, and we need it. And the heart of the ministry of the encouragement of the saints is not, not pl- primarily in, in pleasantries and self-congratulation and esteem building and compliments and accolades, but it's in subsistence, sub- substance, su- substantive uh, exhortation, emboldening, comforting, strengthening, instruction and teaching in the Word of God. This, this is the ministry of encouragement of Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit and executed and, and enjoyed by the church. So may we fully be persuaded that this is the kind of ministry Christ would have us to both engage in ourselves and avail ourselves of this ministry of encouragement. Because Christ on the Lord of uh, the, the Lord on the throne of heaven has He's supremely wise and He's given us these means to be encouraged. He's given us all we could possibly need or ask and more through His ordinary means of grace. Amen.